there. How are you, Diana? Thank you so much for joining us on the Green Grind of Autism. I know how busy you are, and I know, you know, our community is just always very busy, has very little time, but it really means a lot, you know, when parents can carve out the time to come on and have these discussions. Um, I think it helps. It definitely helps me. I hope it helps you and, um, you know, our, our community as a whole. Um, so if you would, please introduce yourself and just share with us whatever you're comfortable with about you and your family. Sure. Uh, my name's Kelly. I live in the Catonsville, um, Maryland area, and I'm married to my husband, David, and he's a nurse and, and I am a physical therapist assistant. I've been a PT assistant for 27 years. I do home health. And uh, within the last year, I've also taken on a role with our local health department as a community navigator for children with special health care needs mm-hmm. and the developmental disabilities program. So I live it and I work it. Um, uh, we have a daughter who's 18. Um, she was a senior in high school. She is neurotypical. Um, and then we have our son Cooper, who is 15, almost 16. He is on the autism spectrum, um, with also some other diagnoses of ADHD, uh, mood disorder, um, reactive attachment disorder. Um, although there's a little bit of controversy about the reactive attachment disorder, his current psychiatrist doesn't believe that you can have, uh, autism diagnosis and a reactive attachment disorder diagnosis because she believes that some of the behaviors overlap. Um, We also have a son Parker that passed away in 2004 um, when we were in a car accident, we were hit by a drunk driver and um, our children are all adopted from Korea. So um, my story um, of, you know, what I'm going to talk to you about is our pretty much our journey with Cooper. Um, he came to us at eight months old um, when we adopted him. And we, he, since he was the third child that we adopted, um, we kind of felt like we sort of knew what we were doing um, as much as any new parent can. And we knew very quickly that something was different about Cooper. Um, he came over overweight. Um, the, the notes that we got from his foster family was they were still feeding him very frequently because he was considered the fussy baby didn't like to be held. Um, but we didn't get too much information. Um, other than when he got here, he was definitely overweight and still being bottle fed, like almost every two to three hours at eight months old. So, um, like I said, within the first few days, we knew that something was different with him. Um, he didn't like to be held. Um, he hated having his diaper changed. Um, he was very fussy. He did not make eye contact. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, obviously when you adopt a child from another country, it's a huge transition for the child. 
he's coming from another country with a different, totally different language, different foods, different sights, smells, everything. So we didn't know if that was part of the issue was just him acclimating to being with us in the United States. Do you mind if I interject and ask a quick question um, about the adoption? Um, I'm not familiar with Korean adoptions. So Uh do you, um, is there a process where like you and your husband went over there for a period of time? Um, Did you meet Cooper before he came to the U.S.? No. So that was one of the reasons why we chose Korea. Now, things have changed since then because you have to figure we adopted Parker in 2001. He came to us when he was six months old. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we were in the process of our second adoption. And then when he passed away, we had to put that adoption on hold. Mm -hmm. So then Lily was adopted at four months old and Cooper was adopted at eight months old. So one of the reasons we had um, decided to go with Korea was because they had decent medical care. The children were in foster homes uh, and they tended to come over fairly young. And Korea was a country that you did not have to travel to. Okay. So we literally, you get a picture, you get a picture and you say, this is your baby. Yes or no. (laughs) So we said yes. And then once you say yes, then you start getting like the medical updates when they go to the pediatrician. Um, If there's any notes from the foster family, you kind of start getting some notification until travel arrangements have been made. And then they travel over. I see. So no, we met our, we met our children in the airport. (laughs) Wow. What an yes. experience! What it, but I mean, it, that just gives me chills to think about. What a, I think a beautiful experience, you know. It was a great experience. I've definitely. I know that things have changed with Korean adoptions a little bit, um, but it was. Yes, we were not one of those parents that wanted our children to look like us. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a horrible pregnancy. I went through fertility treatments, and um, I was pregnant with triplets. And, um, I lost one early on in the pregnancy and I carried the other two till I was 20 weeks and I had a very, um, difficult and traumatic pregnancy Mm -hmm. and ended up, um, it it was just, I was in and out of the hospital a lot. Mm -hmm. And when I did go into preterm labor, you figure this was, I'm showing my age, you know, 23, 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. The medical care was definitely, you know, different. So they, you know, they, um, both of them only lived about 10 minutes. So when we were deciding how we were going to create our family, we had already kind of discussed adoption mm-hmm. um, because I was not one of those women that had, I didn't feel the need to be pregnant mm-hmm. again. Um, I had such a traumatic experience and I was told that I would automatically be considered a high risk pregnancy if I did get pregnant again. And we were more concerned about being parents um, and having children than we were about me being pregnant. So that's why we decided to go the adoption route to create our family. 
Yeah. It completely understandable with what you went through. And I think also a beautiful gift for all of your children and for you and your husband. Yep. It's uh parenthood has been a ride. <laughs> it has <laughs> arrived. Yes. <laughs> oh, and, and you're holding on, right? <laughs> yes, for dear life. Okay, so oh. sorry, you um um back to Cooper, you so he came to the US, you knew very quickly that things were different. Yes. So he did have some GI issues. Um, he did have some GI issues right off the bat. And so we um, dealt with that, took care of that, changed formulas. Um, and, you know, we were told that he was probably fussy because he his GI system was messed up and he wasn't, you know, feeling well, which we, you know, we agreed with. We were like, okay. Um, then he had a failure to thrive diagnosis where, um, he just, uh, he just wasn't doing well. Like he just, a lot of that was tied to GI, GI stuff. So we finally got that figured out and taken care of. Um, but his behaviors and just overall mood, he just was not really ever like a happy baby. Mm -hmm. He was hard to console. He didn't sleep well. Um, he just, he just never really acclimated. So, you know, as we, as he's getting older, you know, we were told, okay, well the terrible twos. So maybe that's why his, you know, he's just fussy and cranky. And then he had a speech delay. Um, <clears throat> we got involved in infants and toddlers um, speech therapy, uh, which helped tremendously. And, you know, then it was like, oh, well, maybe it's just because it's the terrifying threes. And we kept saying, Dave and I kept saying, there's something going on with this kid. Um, I don't know what it is, um, but I'm telling you something is going on with this kid. Yeah. And, um, our other two babies were fairly easy babies. So a lot of times we were told, well, you guys kind of got spoiled with <clears throat> your previous children. You know, they were easy to take care of. They were easy babies. You guys just aren't used to, you know, challenging behaviors. That had to be incredibly frustrating for you. It was very frustrating. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> we, I, I kept saying, I don't know, just something doesn't seem right. Just something doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. So we started took him to Kennedy Krieger um, when he was very young and he was just diagnosed with like a general speech delay. Um, they said nothing was really concerning and continue with infants and toddlers and just kind of go on with their life. Um, and then, so he would, I would say, as he got into like preschool and elementary school, his his speech caught up um, developmentally, <clears throat> like motor skill wise, he was fine other than he was a toe walker. Mm -hmm. And he still to this day is a toe walker. Mm -hmm. um, but his 
behavior was he would go from zero to a hundred very quickly. He would have these outbursts. He would become extremely angry. He would hit, he would scream, he would yell. Um, and so we got him involved in psychiatry pretty early on. And so once we got involved in psychiatry early on, we had him assessed with a couple of different specialists and still he just had like a general, they ruled out bipolar pretty young because you can't really diagnose bipolar until they're older, but they were like, yeah, there's definitely something going on with this kid, but he just doesn't fit. And this is what kind of what we've heard through his whole life. He doesn't quite fit the box of any one diagnosis. He's got a little bit of everything going on. Mm -hmm. So it was just like general mood disorder is kind of what he was diagnosed with at a young age. Um, we took him to our neurologist. We had an overnight EEG to make sure he wasn't having seizures because he would kind of come out of these rages almost like he didn't know that they had happened. Um, or like that nothing had happened. Um, and we kept telling people like just something is going on with this kid. Sure. Um, so. How old was Cooper? Like when you said he was young, but like how old was he when he started displaying the more intense, you know, sort of rageful behavior? He always had that like okay. explosive. So it wasn't sudden onset. Okay. That's the thing with him. There was never like sudden onset. There was never a dramatic change. It's kind of like just the way he's always been. Sure. Okay. Um, so we started doing various therapies, seeing a ton of doctors, specialists, um, you know, one of the first things that we tried to work on was his sleep because he didn't have great sleep, great sleep patterns. Um, and he was finally diagnosed with autism at the age of seven. So, and that was done with a, a psychiatrist that we had met. It was a new psychiatrist um, and just had gone over his history. And so at the age of seven, he said he gave him the, autism diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, now what? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Okay. So now what, what does this mean? Um, so we did, so throughout the years we have done um, a variety of things. We've done medication. We've done homeopathy um, I've gone to Pennsylvania to meet with a MAPS doctor. Um, there was the thought of maybe him having pans. Um, even though he didn't have a sudden onset or a sudden change, um, I've taken him to functional medicine doctors. Um, he was treated for Bartonella, even though, you know, Lyme and Bartonella is not easy to diagnose. The testing is awful. Yeah. Um, we've done a ton of specialized testing for him. We have paid out of pocket so much money, mm -hmm. um, and seen so many specialists and driven to different States 
to see different doctors to try to get this kid help. Um, and honestly, <clears throat> I, I just, it's, it's been hard. Um, there hasn't been one thing that has necessarily helped. There hasn't been one thing that's made him worse. There hasn't been one thing that's made him better. Um, so as he's getting older, his um, outbursts are getting more severe and he's becoming a little bit more physical. So I would say within the past couple of years, when he gets angry, um, he, he can get violent. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> he's injured my husband several times and he went into um, inpatient um, to Shepherd Pratt in November. Mm -hmm. And that was um, because he had broken David's toe. Um, and then he did their day program. And um, that didn't really help. Didn't really do anything. So he came home. Go ahead. I just wanted to ask the... Um the day program does is that in order to get accepted into the day program is it a different process than the inpatient like uh, well, he, day? so the day program he was just referred as kind of like the next step okay um from there the day program was like monday through friday kind of like an eight to three type thing where he's in therapy, but he's in therapy. It's all, it's all group therapy. It's not anything speci like specific to him. It's for the group of kids mm -hmm. that are in the day program. Mm -hmm. um, now you also have to keep in mind that I've done tons of therapy mm -hmm. before this. Um, he does not like therapy. He does not like therapists. He's not the type of person that's going to sit and talk about his feelings. Quite frankly, he doesn't understand his feelings. Mm -hmm. His, you know, his level of understanding of what he's feeling and what he's thinking and how his brain works is limited. I mean, people, you know, he's, he's the term high functioning autism because to just generally see him or meet him you wouldn't necessarily think this is an autistic child, but once you get to know him and try to have a conversation with him and try to figure out the way his thoughts work, then you are like, okay, something's going on with this kid. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's been part of our problem is, um, especially with the autism community is that, he hasn't felt comfortable participating in a lot of the programs and activities that are centered around the autism community mm -hmm. because he doesn't feel like he fits in mm -hmm. because a lot of these children are lower functioning mm -hmm. and he doesn't understand that the autism is a spectrum yeah. and that you can still be on the autism spectrum. It's very broad and that. I, I don't know if he's afraid of being labeled or 
or what it is, but he's been very resistant to participating or engaging with anything with the term autism. Yeah. You know, as a third party, sort of like just hearing you and just processing what you're saying, I can understand if he feels like he doesn't fit in and have a peer group, how he would resist. I can understand that. Um, You know, I feel like, you know, we definitely have um, opportunities in Maryland where he might be able to find a small peer group, but, um, but having said that, maybe I'm completely wrong. Is he in main, he's in mainstream school? Yep. He's in mainstream school, general education on the diploma track. And how, how is that? Like, does he have like a, a friend or someone he sits at lunch with or. He doesn't like, he's not very forthcoming with information. Okay. (laughs) He does not like to tell me about his school day. He has typically done okay in school. Mm -hmm. He does have an IEP. His IEP is pretty minimal, um, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, He gets by at school because I help. I do a lot behind the scenes of helping him at home. And now I'm, I'm getting more pushback from him because he wants his privacy and he does not necessarily want me to know what's going on at school. And um, recently school has become a struggle. Home has been the struggle. He's done okay in school. Now school is kind of becoming a struggle. Um, And yeah, just trying to figure out what's best for him. Mm -hmm is challenging. So I, yes, loud and clear. I hear you. I'm following you. And I know that this is a very difficult situation. Um, you know, I, I I know you've been through a lot. Um, (laughs) I don't, (laughs) I don't know if you want to, um, it, did you want to, and, and I can edit anything. Um, so if, you know, we, if I'm saying something that you don't want to talk about, I'll just edit it out. But did you want to talk about the uh, situation, the, yeah, the current situation with like the inpatient and sort of how that unfolded and sort of what went on? Yes. Okay. This has been, this has been an eye opening experience. Yeah. So, um, so he has a. Uh, an outpatient psychiatrist that we've seen for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, he had just started with an art therapist, mm-hmm. which I really like her and I'm happy I found her. And he is also doing horseback riding. Oh, great. So I found a great teacher person and he's like a different kid when he's on a horse. Um, it's just, he's a little, he does have some anxiety, but once he gets around the horse and he's on a horse, he's like a different kid. It's pretty amazing to see. Um, so that's been one thing that's been beneficial. He does not like the water, which is unfortunate. He doesn't really like the ocean. Um, he, he likes the pool, but he doesn't really like the ocean or anything like that. Like I was trying to get him to do the surfer's healing yeah. and he just, he's like, no. <laughs> yeah. 
So we might come and watch it. But anyway, um, so in February, and we we have had the crisis team to our house a couple times. We have had to call the police a few times, um, and they've come to the house. And I will say that our interaction with the police and the crisis team has been good. Um, unfortunately, the crisis team, there's like a very limited resources. And if you call and they're on the other side of town, they can't come to you because they're dealing with another crisis and then they'll send the police. Um, so it's actually Shepherd Pratt's crisis team. Is that what you mean? Or no, it's through the state, through the state. Okay. State. Um, and it's, uh, and I would say, luckily the police that have been to our house Mm -hmm. have been, been very kind um and handled cooper very well and for it not being a great experience they've handled the situation well also though he's tend to have have de-escalated by the time they get there so a lot of times he's de-escalated and just exhausted um by the time they get there so they don't necessarily see the brunt of what has happened. They can see the, the destruction in the house um, and they can hear what we say, but um, there's not a lot to do at that point. Um, which brings us to February of this year. Um, Cooper had an explosion that was one of the worst that he's had. And he severely injured um, David's leg. So I had to call the crisis team and I called the police. So they both arrived and they saw that David was pretty severely injured and Cooper was still pretty escalated when they arrived. So they had to send um, David to the hospital and then they took Cooper on an emergency petition to Northwest hospital, which um, was not my first choice. But apparently we're limited, you know, with hospitals that have psychiatric um, ERs. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. yep, so I had to go follow my husband and my son to the hospital. And I will tell you, that was a nightmare. Because um, first, they wouldn't let me see Cooper. So, um, because they had to assess him first. Okay, that's fine. But you have an autistic child that's underage that is in a crisis situation and he's now in a psychiatric unit at a a hospital. That's not good. Right. Had he Uh, escalated at all from the time he left your house to... He did de-escalate a little bit, but for him, he was still pretty escalated. Okay. And he was still pretty angry and pretty upset. Um, I, a nurse took pity on me and sent me back and I ended up getting in trouble because she sent me back. Um, She let me go back on the unit and he was still pretty ticked off when he saw me. So that interaction did not go well. Mm-hmm. So um, then 
uh, when he was assessed by, it was such a weird situation because their uh, psychiatry person, it wasn't the psychiatrist. It was like their intake, their emergency intake person. She called me because I was in David's room and the way she spoke to me and the things she said to me, I could not believe she was a professional because she was so rude and disrespectful. And she was like, what have you done to get this child help? And I was like, are you kidding me? What have I done to get this child help? And she's like, and you're trying to tell me that you waited 15 minutes before you called 911 that your son is flipping out and doing all this stuff. And you decided to wait 15 minutes before you called 911. Did he really hurt your husband that bad? And I was like, are you kidding me right now? Like, this is the conversation we're going to have because you don't want to go there with me. (laughs) So she happened to come and try to find me in David's room while they were trying to examine David and possibly suture his leg. And they saw how bad she saw how bad his leg was. And she was like, oh, he did this. I'm like, yes, he did. And then her tune kind of changed a little bit. But I'll say that, so once the psychiatrist saw him and he had like his physical and everything, we were told, I was told he was going to be staying until a bed became available. And um, they said, based upon some of the things that he had said and the situation that had happened, I was not allowed to see him. So he was probably there for a day and a half, two days almost. And they were still saying that I couldn't see him. So then I decided to, the president of the hospital was making rounds and stopped into David's room. And he had given David his email, direct email and contact information. So then I started contacting the president of the hospital directly mm-hmm. saying I have an underage autistic child in the psychiatric unit. And I'm being told that I can't see him. This Mm -hmm. is unacceptable. Yeah. So then I was granted visitation. Um, And basically that's just kind of like a holding space. It's just a holding space that they give him medication and he can watch TV and they feed him. Um, And he was in that space for 10 days until they found an inpatient bed for him. So then he went back to the same unit at Shepherd Pratt where he was in before. Can I ask a couple um, questions? Yes. Oh, well, actually, a couple couple comments and a couple questions. One, the that initial um, was she? I'm sorry. What was her title? The nurse that? Oh no. Okay. I don't know if she was a social worker. Okay. Or what her exact title was. But so there's so much, un- like you said, so, uh, so much unprofessionalism and arrogance and yes. like accusatory. Uh, so I mean, lacking compassion for such a challenging situation. There's so many things we could go on. Um, you know, it, it clearly Pathfinders for Autism has not made it to Northwest Hospital for training. <laughs> I know. I should even contact them. 
I know you had Neil on a couple of weeks ago. He was yeah. very good. Yes. If anyone can do it, they can do it. They just, did you see, they just trained the um, secret service. I know that's pretty amazing, <laughs> but I'm so sorry that you had that experience in such a traumatic, um, emotional ex- time. I mean, yeah, you had your husband over here, your son over here, and you're right. He's underage. He has autism regardless of the behavior that he was presenting he was he was shut down right like you said you he right. he can't there's disconnect with his emotions as in many times there are especially when people are in crisis i i feel like there was definitely i'm glad you had the precedence email because i feel like there was absolutely a violation that happened there I actually got a phone call from the nurse asking if I could bring one of his medications in because they had ran out. And I said, are you kidding me? You are calling me. You haven't let me see him, but you want me to come and bring a medication. It was, it was um, Ritalin. I said, you're telling me the hospital doesn't have Ritalin. And she was like, you know, I thought this was kind of weird when I, when we did a shift change and they said they couldn't get it. And I was like, I am not bringing his medication. I will make a phone call. Mm -hmm. And it was like, of course we have the medication. I'm like, well, why is the nurse calling me asking me if I can bring a medication in from whom that in and of itself is a whole nother issue. Yes, absolutely. I've, I've never heard of such a thing. It was unbelievable. And somebody slipping meds from the hospital. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because, oh, you know, boy. it is considered a controlled substance. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, my gosh. This is really interesting because I haven't talked to anyone who has gone through Northwest. Yeah, I hope they don't have to. Yeah, the communication was awful. The care was not great. Um there were a few kind people that um, I I encountered along the way, but for the most part, it was not a good experience at so all. I don't know that everyone who is listening understands the process for waiting. Well, actually, it I would say being rec- referred or recommended to Shepherd Pratt and then the process of waiting for a bed. Did you want to give maybe a general overview for the folks that are listening? Well, and it wasn't just the bed they were waiting for, for Shepherd Pratt. It was any inpatient bed that was available Okay. Um, in the state of Maryland, Virginia, and DC is where they were looking. There were some places that um, flat out denied him because of the violence that had occurred which led him to the hospital. But for the most part, it was just that there were not any beds available. And from the people that I talked to, they said that that's very common. There had, there was four children ahead of Cooper that had been waiting for beds for almost two weeks before he got there. So it's like a first come first serve. It's just like this constant rotation of, um, that's what somebody does. They put out the referrals. Um, 
when there's a place that will accept them, um, then that's where they go. So Shepard Pratt had said that they would accept him. They were just waiting for a bed to become available. One child was walked out as he was walking in. Wow. It's that much. It's that quick of a turnover. They have to stay in that ER, correct? In the, in the state of Maryland or else they lose their spot. Is that correct? He would be considered discharge because um, there was a doctor's appointment that had been coming up that I was like, am I going to be able to take him to this appointment? And they said, well, sure, you can come take him to the appointment, but then he'll be discharged and you can't bring him back. So I was like, well, that's not going to happen. So then you do, you have to figure that out. What do you do? Do you keep your child in this situation um, to try and get help? Or do you bring them home and hope that this doesn't happen again and hope it doesn't happen the next day? And then you have to go back and reset the process and wait days again for an inpatient bed to become available. It's a horrible system. It's absolutely horrible. Yes. And traumatic. It's traumatic for him. It's traumatic for us. It's just, it's not, it's, yeah, it's it's not good. So, you know, and, and Cooper, as you said, he is um, functioning at a high level. You know, he has language. He, yes. you know, kind of like you said, if you, if you didn't know, you didn't, you wouldn't know until you spent some time with them. Right. Um, how did he handle this time waiting in this confined space? Well, um, sometimes he wasn't too upset about it, honestly, because he didn't have to go to school and he got to watch as much TV as he wanted. Now, also, there was a level of him not completely understanding what was happening, what was going to be happening, and what was the next steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a level of disconnect with understanding that he had hurt his father pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. Um and like no remorse whatsoever. Like no remorse, no empathy, no sympathy. Um did did he remember through the rages, does he remember? He does remember. Okay. Because he, I mean, he even told, like I said to the lady, I can't remember her name now. She said, what caused this? What was the trigger? Mm-hmm. I said, do you want me to tell you what the trigger was? I said, he got frustrated because he couldn't fold the aluminum foil to put in the toaster oven. And she kind of chuckled because she thought that that was like, I was lying. Mm-hmm. Well, when she went to go talk to Cooper, she said, what happened? And he said, I got angry because I couldn't fold the aluminum foil. Mm-hmm. So she said, huh. He told me the same thing you told me. Well, surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So when Shepard Pratt got him again, you know, he had the same social worker. He had a different doctor this time. Um, mm-hmm. They said they wanted to change, do a medication change and wanted to know if we were okay with that. We agreed to it. We got our outpatient psychiatrist involved and, you know, they met and they agreed and and they wanted to discharge him pretty quick without any type of safe discharge plans, just discharge him home. And I said, absolutely not. Like we need to have a discharge plan. We need to have some type of resources in place. 
um, he's no, like something's got to happen. So they um, called CPS on us because they said we refused to pick up our child and they charged us with child abandonment. So my goodness, you cannot make any of this up. No, you cannot make it up. We were having a, a local care team meeting. I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that is. At Shepherd Pratt? Well, Shepherd Pratt set it up. They initiated the referral, but the local care team meeting is done through the county. Okay, no, I'm not familiar. Uh, okay. So I said, fine, we can have a local care team meeting. That's what we need to have. So it's a it's a team meeting where people from multiple agencies come. So like there were some people from the school system, um, juvenile justice, um, DDA, um, mentor Maryland um, from Shepherd Pratt, his outpatient psychiatrist, um, David and I. So there's a multiple, multiple agencies that are involved in this local care team meeting to try and find resources for us. Okay. So CPS called me the morning of the local care team meeting and said, well, we were told because at this point, the admitting doctor at Shepherd Pratt had said she was recommending a residential placement for him. And, um, he, the interesting thing about him is now that this is his second stay there. He doesn't exhibit aggressive behavior when he was there. So they kept saying, we're not seeing any trouble behavior. He's not causing any problems. He's following directions. He's definitely, there have been instances where he could have, you know, gotten angry and he walked away. So we're not sure why he can do it here, but he can't do it at home. Um so the morning of our LCT meeting, the lady from CPS called me because she said, you know, she knows nothing about us, nothing about our case, other than she got a referral from Shepherd Pratt saying that we refused to pick up her son. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to know why. So I gave her an earful <laughs> and she said, well, Shepherd Pratt saying that they're, they're recommending um, wraparound services for discharge. And I said, I don't know what wraparound services are. Nobody's ever said those words to me. Um, I was told that the discharge plan was for a residential center. No, ma'am, that's not what they told me. So I went into this LCT meeting pretty hot and angry. Sure. <laughs> I was pretty livid. Um so you have to let everybody take their turns to kind of talk about the situation. And I said, how dare you come on and say that this is the discharge plan when you have never discussed those discharge plans with us, because we've been under the impression that the recommendation was for a residential. And they said, no, that was the admitting doctor's recommendation. That's not our recommendation. Well, then that should have been communicated to us. Right. Because you do go, we do go and visit him when he's in an inpatient. You have to schedule your, um, you have a family meeting with the social worker. I was in constant communication with the social worker. We went and we would visit, bring him food. 
Um, so it's not like we weren't involved while he was there. Um, so to come on in front of all these agencies to make it look like, oh, they have great a great discharge plan when none of that had been discussed with us. <laughs> when the parents weren't informed. You, you think that there was an actual process, right? A, a meeting with the social worker and the um, the staff, the attending physician, whoever, to talk about your your discharge plan, because that's what you were asking for, right? Right. That support, which you Correct. never got. There, there are so many questions. I'm. I know. You know. I'm just trying to process this for the first time, hearing it from from you verbally. What on earth happened there? Where was the communication breakdown? Who, like, it sounds like several people didn't do their job. Correct. It was awful. <laughs> You're like, correct. <laughs> oh, boy. So, the other thing that makes it tricky is we have private insurance. So okay. a lot, So our outpatient psychiatrist said, I've never talked about wraparound services with you because you don't have medical assistance. I didn't know there were wraparound services available for families with private insurance. And because a lot of these services that are offered are offered to families with medical assistance. And I will tell you throughout the years, we have frequently heard, oh, I wish you guys had medical assistance. We could get you more help. Yeah, you really do need help, but because you have private insurance, you're really limited in what you can get. Um, because I mean, we we do we pay out of pocket for almost everything that we do with him. Um, so it's it's very it's financially draining. It's an, uh, another part of our flawed system, the fail first system. Definitely. So because of all of this situation now, they're finally talking about getting us help and services. But of course, there's a waiting list for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's just waiting lists for everything. There's limited resources. Now, the uh, the out, his psychiatrist did put into motion what's called a VPA, which is a voluntary placement agreement, which is recommending residential a residential treatment center, but there aren't any of it. There are any beds available. So you, you still have, he still has to come home unless we want to continue to refuse to bring him home. Um, at this point, our insurance has now contacted us saying that they are denying payment further payment because it's not medically necessary for him to be there. So, um, so, we bring him home now because this voluntary placement agreement is in place, which that in and of itself is also, it's a packet of information. The doctor has to write a, a big, long explanation that in and of itself is a process. But because of that, we can now get services through DSS, through Department of Social Services. And we have a social worker with them that's coming out to the house now and working with us in Cooper. And she's amazing. She Mm -hmm. is amazing. Mm -hmm. But she is only one of three clinicians in the state of Maryland that is trained in this specific type of therapy. 
And three people for the entire state of Maryland can only do so much. And the only way that you can get this service is if you've gotten to the point of crisis and to the point where your doctor is now saying he's not safe to be in your house. And I've said, do you not think that it would make sense to provide this service before you get into a crisis situation? Right. Because maybe you could prevent the crisis situation. They're very well aware that the system is flawed. They are very well aware that a lot of things don't make sense, but it's the way the system is. Is that therapy simple? Is it crisis intervention? When you said that it's, there a, was- it's, a, it's a crisis intervention type of it's it's a, it's a collaborative parenting type of um, we're doing parenting classes through Zoom on our own, but then she's coming to the house. And this is not forever. This is only for like six to eight weeks. Okay. Um, she's coming to the house. She's met with Cooper. She. It's more about trying to have conversations with him and communicate and kind of figure out where his head is and giving us different ways of talking to him um, that we can try and just communicate better. And then we meet with her on Zoom after she's met with us. So now we're at the point now where she's been to the house a few times. Now she's going to observe us trying to utilize the training that we've learned. Mm -hmm. But that's only for like three more sessions and then that's done. Mm -hmm. So that service is finished. Um, We have, it's called in-home intervention. that's through a program called mentor Maryland, but that's only one to two hours a week in the house. Um, and then we're doing, you know, we're doing the art therapy on our own. Mm -hmm. We're doing the horseback riding on our own. Um, we've now involved an adoption therapist, um, to discuss some possible adoption related issues. So we now have an adoption therapist involved. Um, So we have, we do have some help and some services now, but it took, and David had, David had surgery uh, last week because of the injury to his leg. So it took this much just devastation to get any kind of help. Right. Right. We're in May and this was, was it February? It started. Yeah, it was in February. Yeah. And what's going to happen when these services stop. So the other part of this equation is that, so there, the VPA process, the residential treatment center, we're not a hundred percent sure that that's even the right fit for him. That's where mm-hmm. he needs to be. So that's another thing that we as parents have to figure out is what is the best safest situation for him and for us to be in. We were told about three weeks ago that there was a place in Florida that wanted to interview him. And I said, he's not going to Florida. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay, so I'll refuse that referral. I said, that's fine. Then last week she called me and said, there's a place in Utah that accepted him. Now also just because they accept him, 
doesn't mean there's a bed available. It could still be months before a bed becomes available. Okay. And then we also have to pay child support if he goes to a residential treatment center. So then we have to meet with somebody from the county to establish what our child support payment would be. Um, We did get a call yesterday that there was a local place that wanted to interview him, but I'm not sure that that's where I want him to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would probably be for, they said the average amount of time is six months. Um, And then he would come home. So I said, so he's been inpatient. He did the day program again. We've now reintegrated him back home, reintegrated him back into school. Um, We're doing all these therapies and then we're going to send him away for maybe a couple months and then bring him back home. Like to me, that almost sounds more traumatic. Right. Then it's helpful. So that's where we are with trying to figure out what that's going to look like and what we should do. Gosh, I'm, I'm in deep thought. This is so much. This is so much. And it's um, so unfair that these services are temporary. Um, did you get any list money? Does that ever come through for you? We did get list money. Um, that's how we get, that's how he's doing the horseback riding. Okay. So we did look, we did get list money, um, not like the, I think two rounds ago. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I, I bought, we got a rebounder for him to jump up and down on a weighted blanket. We did the horseback riding, but uh, yeah. So, and, and that's, and honestly, this is just kind of touching the surface of everything because the amount of time and energy and phone calls and emails and conversations I have had to get him help has been unbelievable. And I mean, I have another child. I have two jobs. I have a household. I, you know, it's, this has been more than a full-time job trying to get him help and get him services. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, what you're going through, you're, and you're fighting an uphill battle with the state, um, a state that, and I'm not saying that Maryland is by itself in this category. I, I think it is a, in, in every state, there is children or young adults waiting in ERs for two to four weeks, sometimes upward to, I've heard six, seven, eight months for a bed, a place like Shepherd Pratt to take them and, you know, hopefully evaluate, treat and leave with a solid plan. It's um, the, the whole um, mental health system needs an overhaul <laughs> um nationally and that's sort of like way up here and then we're dealing with like autism and those supports 
you know, like a level down. And um, there is just so much work to be done. The little progress that we've made in the state of Maryland is just a scratch on the surface. I get frustrated because I know for a fact (laughs) that the Congress sat on this for over 20 years and did nothing to address what was happening. And then, of course, the mental health system was dismantled um, through, I believe it was the Reagan administration. And I recognize that not every hospital was operating. There were problems, right? right? There were problems that needed to be addressed within the facilities. It's worse than ever now. And we have um, just a major, not only, you know, we have autism epidemic and a mental health epidemic of grand proportions. And a lot of people are suffering. And I commend you. (laughs) I know these are just words, but it's, you know, autism mom to autism mom. I commend you for being able to maintain your jobs through this. And still be a mom to your daughter. It's so much. It's so much. Like, yes, it's true that, you know, we have trauma similar to soldiers. There's a reason for that. Um, Right. I, I have hope. But you don't, I mean, you don't need hope right now. You need support. You need answers right. and support, but I I have hope with delicate guidance work. Thank God we have her in Annapolis, and you know, thank God we have the autism coordinator for the entire state of Maryland in place. Um, I think this is her third year, but you know, we're under a new administration with the governor. It's going to look different, um, but it does sound like it's been very supportive and on board with doing whatever he can do to support the work. You know, one of the big things that is being looked at is this referral admission into, you know, mental health facilities. They're going through a whole investigation process, but this can't move fast enough. I mean, we need people, we need supports. And you know, you go, you walk into the hospital and the schools and there's not enough support. There's not enough staff. There's not enough nurses. There's not enough doctors. There's not enough counselors. There's not enough one-to-ones. It just goes right. on and on and on. I wish I could wave a, a wand for you and, and give you everything you needed on a silver platter. You know, the best I can offer is just this open conversation and you know, to get it all out there so we can then present it to legislators on a silver platter and hospitals and first responders and therapists. They have to understand how bad this is and what families are going through. Well, and you've been a great support. I know you are busy and you're dealing with your own, you know, issues with with Colin and your family, but you've always been very accessible and reached out and offered help. And I find that that's where, honestly, we get the most help from is when we talk to other parents that have been through it. And a lot of times that's, I need for, I need real 
experience. I need people to tell me what experience they've had, whether it's good or bad, who who they've used that's helped, who they use that is not helpful. Um, I, I just think that, like you said, we need to be a little bit more open about the struggles that we're having because there are so many families that are struggling and that don't help have help. I mean, we don't have, we don't have help. I mean, our, my family's in Delaware. Um, David has family in different States. So we're, you know, we, we do this by ourselves. Um, you know, this is just, it, it's, it's a, it's a lot. It is a lot. You said initially in the beginning of the conversation that thought potentially pans, but then said no. We've done like a ton of like supplements. We've done diet changes. We've done vitamins. I've done energy testing. Um, you know, we've done ABA therapy, which is not helpful. Um We've done medications. We've done antibiotics. Yeah. The only thing we have not, we have not tried medical marijuana, which mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to. I am not opposed to trying that with him. That's just, I've got so much going on and we have so many appointments and things right now that, um, that is on my to-do list is to, um, maybe address that. I know that doesn't address the PANS issue, but, um, the the treatment that we have tried, there really hasn't been anything that's had made any significant improvement. Right. And um, as you know, Colin uses uh, medical marijuana. Um, we started mm-hmm. him on it mainly for anxiety um, and um sort of that behavioral category that rage category because he hit that rate when he hit puberty but he also had the seizures on top so um you know seizures are also lumped into um why we're using medical marijuana and then um finally would just be the overall inflammation that our kids tend to have internally Uh um and it absolutely has helped. Um, he's not he's not rageful anymore. Okay. Now, is that because um, I don't know? Is that because like he got through the worst of puberty, <laughs> or right. is it because you know these things are calming everything down in his body? Um, I, I don't know because he's had he has pandas. He had I mean he. You know, our kids have like a laundry list of diagnosis. Um, right. And it's very complicated and it affects all all their systems. Yeah. It's just, yes, it's very complex. It's not just one thing. It's lots of things. Right. Which is why it kind of brings full circle what you were saying in the beginning, how many specialists and physicians you've been to over the years, because it it is affecting his whole body in different ways. Um, it's not just as easy as going to a gastrointestinal doctor right. <laughs> and fixing whatever GI issues are going on or going to a neurologist and fixing, you know, 
or, you know, throwing medication to calm down, you know, anxiety or CD or whatever, it is far more complex. And when you are ready for that step, and if I can help in any way, let me know because I'm happy to, to help you. It is, it is overwhelming because of course the state's website is like, oh my God, but like I can literally send you the link and, you know, talk you through it. It's, it's pretty pretty easy once you know exactly where to go um so the doctor the doctor that you use we we've seen her before we've worked with her for with her for a couple years when um trying to help with some symptoms was that dr freeman or okay yeah yeah Yeah. and then of course nurse lara for the the medicinal marijuana um so yeah it's and Dr. Freeman, you know, she's, she's considered, you know, cutting edge. Like she's always researching and learning and, you know, traveling and, you know, educating others. And it's so complicated. So complicated. And she's also very expensive. That's the other thing. Cause yeah. she doesn't, she doesn't take insurance. I mean, all these doctors, like the main doctors in our area that deal with like pans and stuff like that, or, or, you know, they don't take insurance. They're very expensive, um, you know, and there's there's only so much money that we can spend on. I, I mean, you know, we have so much medical debt right now just from our, our deductibles. And, um, you know, that's that's another thing that some of, the, you know, we've been lucky enough that we could afford some of these therapies and these doctors, but we can't continue at this pace. It's just not possible. Right. Just side note that I was thinking about when you were talking about the financial part, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's yeah. For anyone who has an understanding of working with their kids, it costs so much money. Uh, Yes completely concur um there's nobody in the mainstream um medical system that that understands it it, there's just not um but what i was going to say was if you do decide to explore the medicinal marijuana sooner than later um i can tell you exactly where to go to get a 40 percent pediatric discount (laughs) Yay. <laughs> and, um, you know, you can, it, it helps, it helps get you through whether, you know, it's, it's a week or two, or if you can afford to stock up for the whole month and, you know, it helps. Um, is IVIG a consideration or no, because they don't cover that unless we can find a way to get it covered. Uh, they don't cover that, and his um, none of his lab work has ever come back to kind of justify it. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's something like I could never do with Colin. It's too invasive for him. There's no way. And the last question I had for you, um, if you are comfortable answering, is like a trauma therapist. Is that something that has been considered? Because a lot of what you're describing, and I know all of it sort of overlaps with one another. Right. I mean, uh, the whole family is in different therapy. <laughs> like we yes. all have our own therapists. 
because we all, yes, have been for a variety of reasons throughout our lives have been traumatized. So we are all kind of in our own separate therapies as well as doing these therapies for Cooper. So we are, yes, dealing with trauma related issues. Yeah. Okay. That that's good. I I hope that there is a breakthrough. And um I have a person that can talk to you about the school you're considering because I saw your message. Yeah, I'm not I'm not super thrilled with that choice. Yeah. Um she she her son my friend's son was there for a period of time. It wasn't a great experience, but it still might help for you to hear why it wasn't a great experience, you know, um, and that maybe she has some recommendations for next steps. Okay. Well, that would be great. Well, um, this I know was a hard conversation and I, I can't thank you enough for being willing to, to be vulnerable and share because too many families are going through this in various stages of what you've gone through. Some are at the very beginning, some are considering, you know, inpatient, some have been through it a couple times and still it's a lot. And I'll never stop advocating. I'm, you know, a lot of times when I have these conversations, pods, I follow up directly with delicate guidance and, and kind of say, you know, what's happening with this? And are you aware of that? You know, feeding the information right to her um, so that she can continue to represent and work directly with the, the committee who is you know, working under the autism coordinator for the state because, boy, we have so much work to do. So anyway, this is kind of where we're going to shift into wrapping up things and try to shift into the light and just ask you some few questions. And I I found that families really like this because they like book referrals and (laughs) and um they let they like advice it's it's helpful so um let's lighten it up a little bit and we'll start with what is your favorite book i don't really have a favorite book i do like to read mm-hmm. but i always fall asleep when i read mm-hmm. so i before i go to bed so it takes me forever to finish a book i don't necessarily have a favorite book i'm reading i just started reading the body keeps the score have you heard of that? I have the book and you're the second friend I have who's reading that right now. Okay. So I just, just started that. So I've heard great things about it. So I'll jump in and start reading too. So then we can have some side conversations. <laughs> what would your dream vacation be? My dream vacation would be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere outside of Catonsville. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love the beach. Yeah. So I I I like to be at a beach. If I could be at a beach and relax, that would be a dream vacation. Sounds perfect. Totally zen. Um, who inspires you? So I was thinking about people that I know that have gone through hell 
and are still standing and they are fighting. Those are people that inspire me because I know so many people that go through rough times Mm -hmm. and they just, they just keep fighting. They just keep fighting and they're there for other people. Like you're a prime example of that. So that's the type of people that inspire me. Well, thank you. But I I think that's beautiful. And I completely agree. They, you know, those people inspire me too. It's how we keep each other going, I think. Yes, exactly. Because I think when you can, when you can look at somebody and you can see, I mean, yes, life is hard. And I don't want to be like, I don't, I, I do have moments of joy. I do have moments of joy and happiness. So you can still go through hell and you can still advocate for your children and you can still have moments of happiness. I think when you, when you can just be around people like that, I think that's very inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. (laughs) You might laugh at this one. What do you do for self-care and respite, Kelly? Oh, so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I did. I am trying to get a massage on a more regular basis. Nice. Um, And, you know, I do Reiki and uh, I'm a Reiki master. I'm a Reiki practitioner. I find Reiki to be very um, calming and helpful. And I listen to podcasts um, because I'm in my car a lot. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. Do you have any recommendations, like one or two off the top of your head? Um, I love Glennon Doyle's uh, We Can Do Hard Things one. And then I listen to Armchair Experts. That's like a funny, silly one with Dax Shepard. But the kids are like, and when we eat dinner together, I, I always have, I'll start a conversation with, I was listening to a podcast today. They're like, oh God, because <laughs> <laughs> I never know what I'm going to say about what I heard and what I learned. I, I, I think we're all listening to them now. Uh, let's see. What is your best advice for parents? The advice I would give is to listen to your gut. Because I've had to fight. My daughter got sick a couple of years ago. She got very sick. And I had to fight like crazy for her. And I will fight like crazy for Cooper. Um, But I will, I listen to my gut. I don't care what somebody tells me if it doesn't sit right in my body and it just doesn't seem right. Um, I feel like you need to listen to your gut, you need to listen to your intuition and just never stop fighting for them. Just keep fighting for your kids. Energy doesn't lie, right? I mean, I I had one doctor when Lily was really sick and I finally got some help. I had one doctor say to me, thank God for moms. He said, thank God for moms because you guys just don't give up. Yeah. Yeah. And thank, thank, God, he said that to you. You needed to hear that. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and this is the last question. Um, what is your greatest hope for Cooper? So my greatest hope for Cooper is that I just want him. And I, I've always said this from the beginning. I don't necessarily care what the diagnosis is. I don't care what he doesn't need to be labeled. I just want him to be able to function at his best ability, um, whatever that looks like for him, 
Um, I just want him to be safe. I want him to have services because what's going to happen as, as David and I age, like what's going to happen, who's going to take care of him. I want him to be able to advocate for himself and yeah, I want him to be able to advocate for himself. I want him to have services. I would love for him to find something he's passionate about. I don't care what it is. Um, and just find his, his moments of joy and happiness, whatever that looks like for him. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I hope more than anything, wish more than anything in the world that you get that for him, that he gets that he's, he's so deserving. You're so deserving. Your whole family is. Well, thank you. I wish that for all of our kids. Absolutely. We're going to make things happen in this lifetime. <laughs> We're not going to stop fighting and advocating and, you know, we will be heard and our kids will get better. I believe that. 